Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet. An event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. But my lifestyle started changing and I went on the sabbatical and so many new possibilities opened during the course of that year. I started tapping into some places where of like extraordinary wisdom that were like mind-blowing that helped me see some things that I wanted to question. I was like, if, yeah, if conventional wisdom has gotten us this far, then there's some things worth questioning about conventional wisdom. And not that conventional wisdom hasn't also taken us places, but there are a lot of limitations, obviously. And so I started challenging that, and then one thing led to another, and it turned into a 13-year deep dive and into a lot Incredible. of different places around the world. And I formally initiated in three wisdom lineages of the Amazon, Himalayas, and West Africa. And all of that exploration was also like deeply experiential, like relentless practices of observing the mind and reconnecting to the body and what I would call rehydrating the soul as well. I'm Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Caplancaya with Prashant Goel. He is a leadership advisor neuroscience and depth psychology pioneer. Prashant used to be an overachiever, ignoring his trauma, before following his instinct and discovering so much knowledge, including traditional wisdom. He will share in this episode his long journey and the tool he used for his transformation. Prashant will also explain why we have the perception that there is not enough for everybody in this world, and so we compete with each other and compete between countries. But Let's ask Prashant to summarize his thought on this and ask him what is driving our society. So I would say that economics is the discipline that most drives how society operates. And at the center of the definition of economics is scarcity. That's on page one of economics textbooks. And we're so immersed in scarcity that we take it to be the nature of reality. We don't notice that it's actually a social construct built upon perception that's influenced by trauma. And trauma is an inner experience which creates scarcity. I can go further into that if that proves to be relevant. But it we then project it outwards, and we have this experience that there's not enough in the world, and therefore we compete with each other. And therefore, we create a system which needs more and more and more and more, and uses GDP maximization as a proxy, a single narrow metric as a proxy, which is actually not what we want. What we actually want is connection, what we actually want is joy and happiness and humor and love and all the beauty that exists in, in human life. And we use GDP as this metric that's supposed to then magically create those things afterwards. But why not focus on those things in the first place? Because GDP in that system that's driven by scarcity has created a relationship with each other based on competition, has related a relationship with nature based on domination, and we've used it to justify all sorts of policies 
which are, when you go into any of the really fundamental assumptions of economics, are based on a paradigm of disconnection. And so global wisdom traditions suggest that the work is to go inside, and transformation always begins with our character first. And that as we go inside as individuals, that's where connection exists, and that's what we bring then out into the world. And so if we put a paradigm where it's understood, where the interior condition and healing and getting trauma informed and doing what global wisdom traditions have always provided so many practices and ways of integration and healing to do, it allows us to expand our understanding of the world and what's possible in human life. And it moves us beyond the confines of our social constructs. And we all have a chance to, to live in a different way. And, and, and part of my point, I guess, as well, is to just sort of end this summary, is that there are ways of being both on an individual and collective level that put connection first. And there are models that exist right here, right now. And this sense of possibility is very important to not go into a place of despair or question like where the world is right now. It's like, this is where the world is right now. And we can talk more about that as well, like what is happening right now. But the point is that there's so much further that we can move into from here. And it's like, this is what's in front of us. Let's do the work and let's and, and, and start building that now. Can we start with the individual level? We'll finish with a collective one. How do you reconnect with your own human being? You know, an exercise that I led yesterday, which I think even people on the podcast could just, because it's such a brief exercise. It's like if you take a moment and I offer two requests. And the first request is to, I'm going to bring it right now, which is to stop thinking. Okay, so notice what that's like to stop thinking. And then the second request is notice what you're thinking. And so for most of us, stopping thinking is, is difficult. Yeah. But noticing what we're thinking is very like accessible. That's a shift into the power of awareness. And that power of awareness of like watching, being in a practice of observing our thoughts and seeing we have 50,000 thoughts a day, research from the National Science Foundation suggests. And some estimates are even higher than that. So there's a lot of thinking going on. And 95% of those thoughts are the same today as they were yesterday. So it's not like I'm living into a new set of possibilities. I keep recreating the old ones. And 80% of them are fear-based. And so we live in a, in a model that is inherently constricting. And so it also goes back to Descartes when he associated, I think, therefore I am. He associated thinking with being. And that's not actually ultimately true in human nature, you know? <laughs> so like all these thoughts, all these thoughts, and we give them a lot of energy. And, and it's fine. There's nothing like wrong with it. It's just that there's a different set of possibilities that if we cultivate this awareness, that can grow and grow and grow and grow. And I, I mean, I can offer a series of things that have been most meaningful for me in terms of growing that awareness. One is the moment-to-moment -moment practice, because it's like this, you know, any spiritual tradition, any wisdom tradition, any logical person could draw the conclusion that in life, this is the only moment we ever have. It's like, this is where life is happening. And so being 
as present as possible, which is hard with all the thinking, but just coming back gently as often as we can, that's already like breathing consciously is already feeding awareness. And awareness grows slowly. It's almost like at the pace of nature. But if you keep it, we have the saying, time heals all wounds. It's actually time plus consciousness heals all wounds. And so it's like if we're practicing being consciousness, being conscious, that's supporting our healing process. So that's the moment-to-moment practice. That's ultimately what everything is leading back to. But the moment-to-moment practice is interfered with by a lot of thoughts. And where do those thoughts come from? It comes from things that are held in our body, unconscious elements that are undigested. And so the way, you know, there are ways to work with that and heal that. And I'll name five things that have been meaningful for me. One is doing shadow work and trauma integration work. And shadow work is understanding the dynamics of depth psychology and seeing that in day-to-day life when we get triggered, there's always a precious clue there. There's always something that's saying, ah, this is actually a chance for me to feel and see what I'm thinking in response to this thing and see how I want the outside to be different and notice that I have responsibility for my emotions, for my thoughts, and for my, even for my physical sensations. And to learn, instead of wanting to get out of those situations or blame in those situations, wanting to feel better, coaching ourselves into those situations, learning to get better at feeling. So that's the shadow work and trauma integration piece. And then there are modalities like NARM, neuroaffective relational model, somatic experiencing. Those are fantastic models of working one-on-one with people for trauma integration. Okay, so that's one. A second one is meditation in general. But for me personally, I specifically recommend Vipassana meditation. There are retreats worldwide for free that you can do that are 10 days and they're challenging. But like once you cultivate like a deep practice of meditation and I've had one for a long time and I do multiple hours a day it's like it's like a chance to just keep practicing feeding your awareness keep it keep practicing it actually makes the prefrontal cortex the most mature part of the human brain it actually gets thicker when we meditate our reasoning capacity grows and it actually makes the parts most associated with fear smaller and so neuroscience shows it's like meditation we take in our society as this like kind of nice to have or, or a way to balance relative to like imbalanced systems and all this like go, 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 go. But meditation has a much deeper potential than we tend to associate with it. And it's, it's unlocking human potential actually. So we have like shadow work uh, and trauma, meditation. Shadow work and trauma integration. Meditation, which I specifically suggest Vipassana as well because it's such an embodied exercise. Third, I would say plant medicine, which is growing in stature in the world right now, like the use of psychedelics and different plant medicines. I've worked with various plant medicines extensively, and they and, and there are different philosophies about this, but I, you know, I trust each one to choose their own path. I can tell you plant medicine has been a huge, huge grace in my life, a huge source really? of healing. Yes, absolutely. And, I, and I've worked extensively, and I'm very grateful for that. Additionally, I would say the investigation of global wisdom traditions, just like the actual study of what different traditions have had to say, because it re- helps you to recontextualize where we are in human life right now through a bigger lens. This one that's not well known, 
but it's fantastic. It's like my favorite form of body work ever, and it's called network spinal analysis. And network spinal analysis is a form of chiropractic, but only in name, because it's actually very, very gentle. And the intention behind it is to activate the nervous system. The nervous system is brilliant, you know? And I mean, we could talk about the nervous system's brilliance as well, but in activating the natural healing capacity that is inherent in the nervous system, network spinal analysis, it's like you do it and you do a number of sessions over time and it's cumulative. And it's like, I've done a lot of sessions and for sure when I'm when I come out of a session, I feel energy moving up my spine. I feel like more open. And it's just, it's a little bit at a time, but it's like the growth, it's, there's also a lot of practitioners that work with biofeedback mechanisms and you can see it in your charts. Your charts will show, wow, my nervous system is integrating old energy that it just, that has just been kind of lying around, you know? So those are, those are some tools for, and I also have an extensive list of resources which I could put on my website if that's helpful for people yes, as well. Yes, I would love to. Yeah. Can you come back also on the plants, mm. on the plant medicine? Sure. Which one really helped you and how? Yeah. So... I'll just name that, yeah, I have extensive plant medicine history, and the ones that have been most meaningful to me have been ayahuasca, santodaimi, mushrooms, and iboga. And they all work in various ways. They all have incredible intelligence within them. They all have the capacity to bring incredible insight, surface unconscious content, open energetic channels in the body, spark creativity, re-understand things that happened in the past so that they can be integrated, and really incredible power to even like remove old stuck traumas from the body. I just want to add uh, another thing, which is breathwork is also great. Prashant Goel hasn't always been such a wise man. He had to do important work on himself using all these different tools he has just mentioned. A long journey for someone who suffered from trauma was an overachiever working hard and burning the candle at both ends. I had a lot of trauma in my childhood. And then what I tried to do to compensate for that was achieve, like trying to go outside to fill something missing inside. But the thing is, I wasn't even conscious of that process. It just seemed like normal and what I should do and what was possible to do. I didn't have any reference for anything different. So I was on that path and I, I went to graduate school and I got degrees in law and business and I graduated top of my business school class and then I was in business strategy consulting and I just kept following this achiever place, you know, inside myself. And, and what I found in that was, okay, I'm going to be number one in my consulting class and I'm going to I present to Fortune 500 C-level, and I fly to Europe first class for engagements, and all of this stuff, and great people around me as well, and interesting work as well. But something in me is just like, if I keep doing this for another 30 years, I don't see how that actually fundamentally changes anything. And I don't actually have an awareness of trauma at that point. I don't actually understand much of myself at that point. I just know that something, just like a little niggle inside me is saying, do you really want to keep doing this? This doesn't feel that great. There might be something else to explore here. And I just, like a tiny thing, and I, and I chose to listen to that. And I had traveled a lot already, 
and I decided, okay, I'm going to go on a one-year sabbatical. I always thought I want to do this big world, you know, worldwide trip. This is the time to do it because I don't know what's going on with me. And I, you know, my lifestyle started changing. I, I was partying so hard in those days as well. That was like part of the coping mechanism was like drinking and drugs and, and whatever. And it was Work hard, party hard. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, like obscene amounts of alcohol, like obscene. I was really, I mean, technically I fit the definition of an, al an alcoholic. And I, I quit drinking when I read Gandhi's autobiography, like literally flying back from San Francisco after a weekend partying hard. And I was just like, I'm done. And that was already over 13 years ago. But my lifestyle started changing and I went on the sabbatical and so many new possibilities opened during the course of that year. I started tapping into some places where of like extraordinary wisdom that would have like mind blowing that helped me see some things that I wanted to question. I was like, if, yeah, if conventional wisdom has gotten us this far, then there's some things worth questioning about conventional wisdom. And not that conventional wisdom hasn't also taken us places, but there are a lot of limitations, obviously. And so I started challenging that. And then one thing led to another. It turned into a 13-year deep dive and into a lot Incredible. of different places around the world. And I formally initiated in three wisdom lineages of the Amazon, Himalayas, and West Africa. And all of that exploration was also like deeply experiential, like relentless practices of observing the mind and reconnecting to the body and what I would call rehydrating the soul as well. And, and it was just a, a completely different shift. I never had any reference points for anything connected to healing or trauma or you know, different points, of, like different cultural perspectives than the one I grew up in. I mean, I did have references because I was, you know, Indian, I was born to Indian parents, but like the wider realm of what different societies say about human life was new to me. All of that just was like a very deep transformation. And I have my own challenges as much as anybody else. I have trauma that lingers in my body. I have, I have my own doubts or difficulties or whatever, but there's been so much transformation and so many layers of defense removed and so much relief, actually, you know, like there was a lot of pain in my system, but it was all unconscious and it was all just in my numb body. I didn't feel anything because that was the way to shut it down. And so as I started reconnecting, I had to go through a lot of stuff as well, which was not comfortable, but it also I trusted my process of integration. And so that informs everything I'm seeing. It's like, okay, I was that way and I was completely shut down in a way, but I was also achieving at a really high level. And then this happens and I feel like my eyes wide open and it helps me make sense of the world in a completely different way through the lens of healing. A lot of what we say about the world is like, oh, well, that's just normal. The amount of difficulty we have across so many different ways that we're all aware of in this moment. And I can talk about more if it's relevant. We see all that. We say, oh, that's just, that's just how the world is. That's normal. But it's actually only normal in a world that is hurting. And so if we understand that there's so much deeper potential in human life that we all feel in our own bodies and in our own hearts, I feel like that's the thing that unites us most is the feeling of that beckoning of potential. It's like we recognize that's possible. It's like, okay, well, let's find new ways to, to challenge what we've been doing and live into new possibilities. And all of those things are already here as part of my point of view as well. And, and that I find inspiring and exciting, even if... Things are challenging at the moment as well. 
Do you think you need to, to uh, convince people to spread your values? Because you cannot uh, do that alone, no? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that the work is not a work of... I don't conceive it myself as a work of convincing. I feel like these understandings resonate with people who want to hear them and are ready to hear them in some way. And it touches something in them that feels like, yeah, that feels more true to me than what I've been living by. And then they step into it on their own, and it's a very organic process. And it's a, it's a process that, that unfolds, actually, in, in my experience, with a lot of beauty and, and magic. And for me, I trust that process most of the time, I can say. <laughs> and, and sometimes I, I get lost, and I go into a little bit of forcefulness. But for the most part, it's like, no, I, I, I do my part in stepping into that. And I know there are many other people out there doing beautiful work in that in some way we're all together and even even people who are not in that we're all together and that's maybe the main point is we're on this planet together and we've been treating each other like enemies for someone who's um feeling a little bit like you were feeling like yeah. something's wrong but uh, i'm living a comfortable life uh, yeah. i don't want to i don't want to give it and uh, i'm a bit scared Yeah. what I'm going to find, yeah. what would you advise? Oh, man, that's such a great question. First of all, to just, I would say, I understand. And I see that there are many really good reasons why you've continued to choose what you've been choosing. And if that, if that feels like the only accessible step for now, then just to accept yourself in making that step. That's the first thing I'd say. But if the hunger for change is big enough, then to listen to yourself and honor that and to start to explore some possibilities of changing what you're doing habitually, which may include some kind of retreat or may include some kind of new books that you are interested in, which I can also put the resources list available. Thank you. Trying meditation. There's so many apps right now that make it so accessible. Trying to experiment with your diet, trying to experiment with supplements, just different ways of inviting health, trying to experiment with a 10-minute walk in the park at lunch, yeah, you know? To make space for that. To yeah. make space for that. And that's the thing is like in a system of scarcity, it creates so much pressure on time and we get really caught up and, and it's all very understandable, you know, given the, the assumptions of the model we live in that, you know, we're feeling squeezed for time and, you know, like got to be productive and, you know, like it all makes a ton of sense to operate that way in a system of scarcity. But so it's like, man, we feel, we're all feeling that pressure over time more and more. And it's like, <laughs> does it have to be this way? And as we feel that, it's like, okay, well, let me create space for myself. Let me be intentional in remembering what is meaningful to me and putting our actions behind those intentions. You compare the transformation with a beautiful image uh, with mm. a caterpillar. Yes. Uh, can you uh, explain? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, this is nature's most well-known metaphor for transformation. And everybody's familiar with the caterpillar to butterfly, but not necessarily what happens inside that process. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, so what happens is amazing, and, and I find it beautiful. Basically, in the last days as a caterpillar, the caterpillar eats many times its own body weight. And, and as it's eating voraciously and gluttonously, one might say, it actually onsets the cocoon phase. In the cocoon phase, 
the caterpillar's body dissolves in this ooze of cells. It's kind of like a goopy soup. And these new cells keep coming. They start arriving, called imaginal cells. And originally, the old cells don't recognize those cells, and they see those cells as a threat, and they attack those cells. But they keep coming, and as they keep coming, they start clustering together. And as they cluster together, they start communicating, and they literally start vibrating in the same frequency. And then those clusters start clustering, and it grows. And then at some point, a tipping point is reached, and they begin to, at, at that point, it's, it's moving towards a time where there's only imaginal cells left. And so then that moment arrives, and intelligence directs some to become antenna, some to become some of the imaginal cells to become wings, some to become legs, some to become the body. And this new being capable of flight starts taking shape. And then in the last days, if you were to try to cut open the cocoon, it wouldn't be able to fly. It actually needs the self-generated struggle to fly, but it does and it, and it merges as a completely new being capable of flight, which is you know, entirely different than what it started as. Prashant told us about how we could change on the individual level, but also on the collective level, to stop feeling threatened by scarcity. His speech in Caprangaya resonated with some guests who were in harvest, like Liu, an Italian based in the US, and Flavio from Romania. You know, the solution that he's providing is what the solution that uh, uh, many are, are saying, which is to ignore the uh, traditional uh, leadership and to focus on the positive things that are happening, like for example, uh, the, the, the event that we're here, uh, which is part of that uh, wave of, of change. And uh, I, I, I do understand, and of course that's a valuable way of looking at it, but then, uh, and I think that he also said that then unfortunately, we, if we don't confront the, 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 the reality we live in and the fact that uh, our world is still heavily controlled by traditional ways of, of uh, you know, of, of, uh, of ruling the world and, and then those, those, that type of leadership. Um, I think personally, I mean, I, I also resonate with the element of scarcity being one of the, or the main root cause of most challenges that we have in the world. And when we look at, at solutions, basically looking to transform that mindset, because it's a man-made mindset, it's, it's something that doesn't really exist. So um, working together to transform that mindset, I think, is what's going to push us forward. Prashant has three advanced degrees in economics and mentioned in his talk alternative models, starting with the donut economy. I'll put a link to the notes of the podcast, but you can just visualize a donut, which is a visual framework for sustainable development. Inside the donut, you'd have the social foundation, and outside the donut, that's the environmental ceiling. Let's get Prashant to tell us more about that and why he likes this system. So donut economics is a model that I think is worth rallying behind. There are many other economic models that are beautiful and fantastic and 
represent a step forward from where we are right now. And I think donut economics is one that is really well thought through, very well researched, and very well expressed relative to sort of the existing understanding and why this is a step forward. And so donut economics suggests that the 20th century economic model that we've been using has a set of assumptions that have led us to the brink of climate catastrophe. And so 21st century economics needs to reimagine itself, basically. And it has a different set of assumptions about how human beings even are. Like, rather than uh, self-interested, we're actually reciprocating in social beings. And rather than isolated, we're also uh, interconnected with each other. And rather than having domination over nature, we're actually deeply embedded uh, with the web of life. So the fundamental assumptions are what I'd call like a water-first culture, which is putting connection first, what you actually want, putting that first, rather than assuming that if you put money first and the material first, those things will follow. And, and those things haven't followed, and we've seen the deep limitation of that, and that actually we're getting further and further fragmented. So donut economics, what it does at an essential level is it accounts for two fundamental factors, which are what are called the social foundation and the ecological ceiling. And it directs attention to make sure that factors of the social foundation like looking out for a, from a perspective of interconnectedness that we all, maybe we can thrive to a certain degree individually, but that's a sense of imbalance that's already expressed through hyper-individualism, that a bigger part of our thriving comes together because we feel that the collective is unhealthy and that impacts us. So if we look at the social foundation, it means making sure that everybody has a chance to have their basic needs met and that a society that's generated so much abundance could be formulated in a way that creates that kind of healthy structure. Um, so it measures things like education and housing and um, various factors like that in the, in the social foundation. Yeah, social foundation is called a donut just because, uh, so people can imagine. Yeah, it's good. in the good. center of the donut. It's a hole. Yes. And so basically you cannot touch, you need to make sure in this economy that everybody's safe in that hole. Yes, perfect, perfect. Okay. Yes, and, and so I should thank you for, for, for bringing that in. And so the ecological ceiling in the social floor, and there is... So it's like kind of two concentric circles in the space between those two concentric circles. It's hard to describe over radio. <laughs> you know, it is the donut. And so yeah. the social floor is what I just described. And then the ecological ceiling are nine planetary boundaries identified by scientists as the ones most fundamental to maintaining a healthy relationship with our global ecosystem and, 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 and maintaining a sense of balance. So it measures both those planetary boundaries and how we're doing relative to uh, the social foundation, the social floor. And the sweet spot is what she calls the safe and just space for humanity, which is actually what we're actually looking for. And so, you know, what I would say is that if we look at our own lives, how often do we get what we want if we focus on something else entirely. 
It doesn't make any sense, but yet we, that's what we've done with GDP, is we think we're going to get what we actually want, which is the richness of human life, by focusing on the most material outcomes. And that hasn't happened. It's, it's just fundamentally flawed logic. And here it's saying, well, what we actually want is connectedness with each other and the social foundation, connectedness and balance with nature and the ecological ceiling, and a culture that is safe and just for humanity. And so put that at the center, and then let's measure the things that actually drive that so we can adjust our policies and our interactions with each other and our business uh, movements through that lens. And I think it's very powerful. Amsterdam has already adopted it, and it is, so that's realistic. Yeah, it's yes. absolutely realistic. It's absolutely realistic, and it's gaining a lot of traction. It's not how we're doing things globally, but things take time to change. I look at the positive sign of change that Amsterdam is doing this, and Amsterdam's a major global capital, and, and they're, it's changing how they're doing things. They initiated in COVID, understanding that people were operating virtually. They got computers from people who weren't using them and, and got them to people who could use them. They started recycling computers. They changed the fashion industry, like three billion pairs of jeans, which is a very intensive process in terms of environmental impact. They got the fashion industry to adopt 20% recycled jeans, which is a great step forward. They were building housing and they were using... Um, no emission boats, and they were using uh, a specific criteria for materials that could all be used again, and and just building it, building it in a very conscious way. And so these types of things are happening, but also on a cultural level, the types of conversations that people are having, the way people are working together, it's moving away from the paradigm which creates so much fragmentation to actually, oh, we want the safe and just space for humanity together. We want this ecological ceiling together. We need to talk about how we do these things to realize it. And so it's also a culture shift model as well. And yeah, I, I think it's beautiful. Many, many cities are, I have friends who work at Kate Rayworth's organization, and many cities are like knocking on their door, and there's a lot of activity happening in her, in her work. Well, I think it's time, a question for the harvest of the day, a question okay. I'm asking to all the guests. Yeah. If something, I'm sure you have an answer, yeah. um, if something very easy, easy that could change the world, uh, make the world a better place to wow. what would it be? If yeah. you had to pick one thing, easy. Self-awareness. How? <laughs> well, that's, that's the point at the center of all wisdom traditions is like, is that when you grow more, you know, it's know thyself. We've heard that so many times, but we tend to associate that with just the level of what is in our known identity. But there's a whole other level, which is our being, which we spoke about earlier through that little exercise. And as our connectedness with that happens, it is healing. It, like inherently, it has a quality that brings new vitality to our bodies and our minds. And and it transforms perception, and then you have more energy to go out and do what you want to do, what is most connected to your own sense of purpose. And so it ripples outwards the more you go inside yourself as well. You have more then to bring into the world. And so it works dynamically in that your own felt experience of life is better, 
but also what you have to contribute to the world is stronger and tends to have more creativity and tends to have more richness to it. And so to me, self-awareness is the most foundational leverage point that we've got. And it also is just about quality of life ultimately. I hope you enjoyed this episode and President Goel's view on our perception of scarcity, how to fight against it on an individual and collective level, and the personal story he shared on how he stopped being an overachiever by listening to himself. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram Harvest Series. The next episode will be in two weeks with Klaus Sendlinger. He is a specialist in sustainable hospitality known to be a visionary in the tourism industry. Until next time, 